Our text for this morning is actually Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38, and 10, verses 1 to 15. So if you find Matthew chapter 10, we will be starting just a hair before that. We are at a turning point in the book of Matthew. We've seen over the last couple of chapters, Jesus exercised tremendous authority over all aspects of creation in bringing his kingdom to bear for his people. Bringing the restoration that is promised by the kingdom of heaven. We've seen him in Matthew 5 to 7 talk about what life in this kingdom is like. And how we ought to live in light of this kingdom. And we've seen his preparation for all of that ministry as we looked at Matthew 1 through 4. There's a massive shift, though, that's happening now in our text today. And that's this shift for the disciples from being observers of this kingdom coming to being actual participants in it. Jesus, as he commissions his disciples here in Matthew 10, is fulfilling the promise that he made back in Matthew 4.19. That if they would follow him, he would take fishermen and make them fishers of men. He would teach them how to be part of his mission. He would invite them to participate. As we think about mission in the book of Matthew, we know that the end of Matthew concludes with Jesus giving his disciples the great commission, right? Go and make disciples, baptize and teach them. This is even part of our church's mission statement, right? We exist to be and make eternally joyful disciples of Jesus Christ. Yet as we look at the call and commission to missions, there is a danger that we would end up without the right foundation. This is a danger that was even present as me and Charlie and Thad were talking over this text together. The danger is we would pay a bunch of attention to Matthew 10, verses 1 through 15, and we would pay very little attention to Matthew 9, 35 to 38. It's a danger because in Matthew 9, 35 to 38, we see the heart of God on display in Christ Jesus, in his compassion for his people. It was a danger that we were facing this week because as I was trying to think about how to preach this text, I was mainly focused on the how of mission, the what of mission in Matthew 10, and kind of thought of Matthew 9, 35 to 38 as as just a precursor. I wasn't connecting, in other words, the compassion of Jesus to his mission. And I think we can often end up doing this. I'm grateful that as we talked about it, Charlie and Thad helped me see the importance of compassion in this text. And I think they're right. I think it can be a danger for us, though, as well, just in general, as we think about the call to make disciples. That we treat this call to make disciples as primarily a burden. As primarily something that we know we don't do well enough and we know we ought to do better. And we think about that call itself without considering the compassion of Christ that lies behind that call. The compassion of Christ that draws us in to participate in that call. I noticed this myself when thinking about great missionaries. We're reading a biography right now of William Carey. One of the founders of modern missions, a radical missionary to India 
Some of the stuff he does is downright crazy. Some of it is a good crazy. Some of it is maybe not so good crazy as we're learning. But one thing is clear. He had a radical compassion for the people of India. He was drawn into the mission because he saw a people who were lost, harassed, helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, without hope in this world. And he was overcome with compassion for this people. He had a new way of seeing the world as a result of the gospel. It's a new way of seeing the world that's centered on the compassionate heart of God. And that's what I want us to see as we walk through this text today. This main point of this message, the main thing I want us to see in this text, is that our mission begins with the compassionate heart of God. Our mission begins not with our own our own. Uh, emotional involvement or our own compassion. Our mission begins with the compassionate heart of God. All of missions, all efforts to make disciples flow out of the fact that we worship a compassionate God who has first moved towards lost people, who has first rescued those who are harassed and helpless sheep without a shepherd. Our mission begins with the compassionate heart of God. As we look through this text, we're going to see Jesus' compassion on display in Matthew 9, 35 to 38. And we're going to see that because of that compassion, flowing out of that compassion, Jesus' compassionate response towards hurting people, flowing from that are two invitations to the disciples. And I think by extension, two invitations to us. One is to pray and one is to go. And we'll unpack a little bit more of what that I mean by those. But we'll see those in the text. An invitation to pray And an invitation to go. Jesus' compassion displays the compassionate heart of God that is behind his mission to redeem. And so, that's why I say that our main point today is our mission begins with the compassionate heart, not just of Jesus, but of the triune God working together to redeem and rescue his people. In light of that, let's pray and ask God for help and then let's read his word together. Father, I pray that by your spirit, you would indeed cause your word to come alive in us, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for us this morning. I pray that you would help us to see your compassionate heart on display in your son, Jesus, and that you would help us to then be drawn in to respond to the invitation to participate with your son in his mission, your mission to rescue and redeem. I pray that you would help us see what only you can help us see. We are blind without you, and so we ask your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Read with me, would you, Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to ten, fifteen. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples And gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out. 
and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff. For the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Look back with me at Matthew nine thirty-five to 36. We see, first of all, that Jesus himself sees with compassion. Jesus himself sees with compassion. Jesus responds to the overwhelming need of the world with compassion. Notice, first of all, that Jesus' ministry is expanding. Verse 35 says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. If that sounds familiar, it's because it is. This is a summary of what Jesus is doing. And we saw another similar summary Back in Matthew 4. In Matthew 4, 23, Matthew records Jesus doing the very same thing. He says in Matthew 4, 23, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. The difference is now Jesus is not just going throughout all Galilee, but he's going throughout all the cities and towns. I think the implication is at least in Judea if not broader, in Israel. He is now taking his ministry and expanding the reach, not to build himself a bigger following, but because the needs are so great. It is not just a need in Galilee. It is a need for all the cities and villages of Israel and indeed even the world. As Jesus' ministry expands in scope, he experiences Crowds flock to him. People in need flock to Jesus wherever he goes. Matthew 4.25, great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Capolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. They follow him right up the mountain. And then he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. And what happens after the Sermon on the Mount? We see in 8.1, when he comes down from the mountain... Great crowds followed him. We see in 8.18, as he's healing 
cleansing the leper and healing the centurion's servant and then healing Peter's mother-in-law and healing those who are brought to him. Uh, in Matthew eight sixteen. that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. What's the result? Verse 18, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, people are pressing around to him to experience the kind of rescue he offers. We see this again in Matthew 9, verse 8. After he heals this paralytic, we see in verse 8, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God. There are crowds around him clamoring for his attention, clamoring for the help that he provides. So much so that we know from the book of Mark that this paralytic had to be lowered in through the ceiling of the house that Jesus was in. Crowds are flocking all around him as the refreshing waters of the kingdom bleed through in Jesus' very presence. Remember, we talked about that last week, how these miracles are evidence of the presence of the kingdom of God. And they are really largely because Jesus belongs to the kingdom of heaven and he's come down to earth. As these, as the miraculous life of the kingdom of heaven bleeds through and is brought to bear by Jesus, crowds flock around him like those who are dying of thirst. Their hearts are crying out like the psalmist, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? This is the condition of Israel, and it's evidenced by the crowds that constantly came to Jesus. It wasn't, there were some, sure, who were just coming to see something impressive. But there were many more who were coming out of a deep sense of need. And Jesus, as his ministry expanded, was confronted with the needs of the world. The overwhelming needs of the world provoked Jesus to compassion. It wasn't like it had to work hard because Jesus is compassionate. But notice, if we look back at verse 35, or excuse me, verse 36, when he saw the crowds, what happened? He had compassion for them. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. We might think of showing compassion as to be filled with merciful love for the hurting, for the needy, for the undeserving. We see it in places like Matthew eight twenty seven, the parable that Jesus tells of the unforgiving servant. The compassion is shown by the king. The servant comes to the king with a great debt. And begs to be forgiven. And Jesus says, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Out of pity or compassion. Same word there. Or we see it in the story of the prodigal son. Right? The son who doesn't deserve to be under his father's house and has squandered every opportunity is crawling back thinking maybe, just maybe, I can get a place with the servants. That would be better than a place with the pigs. And what happens? His father arises, or the son arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This is the same kind of compassion we see in the story of the Good Samaritan. All the religious leaders walk by this man who has been beaten and robbed and is dying. But a Samaritan, his mortal enemy, comes along 
And Jesus says this, A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. This kind of compassion leads the Samaritan to bind his wounds and put oil on them, and then take him to an inn and make sure he's fed and offer to come back and pay the rest that is owed, as long as the innkeeper cares for him. This is the kind of compassion that Jesus felt towards those who were around him. It was a merciful love for the hurting, the needy, and the undeserving. It was provoked by coming into contact with the great needs of the world. Why did Jesus respond with compassion? As I said, Jesus himself is compassionate, but I want to think more on a, his humanity level. What was different about Jesus that caused him to respond with compassion. He's seeing the same people that the Pharisees have been seeing all along, but he's seeing them differently. Notice again in verse 36. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. His compassion was elicited not by hearing about what's going on with his people, but by seeing them, which I take to mean something he saw caused him to be compassionate. Look back in Matthew 9, verse 11. Notice what the Pharisees see when they see people gathering around Jesus. Let's read verse 10. Jesus reclined at table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, notice what they see. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're asking this question because they see these people who a respectable rabbi in Judea ought not to be eating with. These undesirables, these hurting and needy, but most definitely undeserving sinners and tax collectors. What does Jesus see? Look at verse 12. What does Jesus see? When he heard it, Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus doesn't deny that they're sinners, but what does he see? He sees the sick in need of a physician. He sees those who need mercy and is drawn to them. He sees, as he says in verse 36... People who are harassed and helpless. Sheep without a shepherd. Notice Jesus didn't see the good that's really in their heart. This is something we can commonly misunderstand about compassion. The world would try to dredge compassion out of you by telling you, you know, don't read a book by its cover. Look at what's really down underneath. Get to know them. Yeah, they're, they're, they're dirty and disgusting and despicable. But if you get to know them, you'll think differently. That's not what Jesus did. He knew them and he knew that one of the things the Pharisees said was actually true. That they were indeed sinners. They were indeed undeserving. Jesus saw with the compassionate eyes, though, of a good shepherd who sees his people that he has chosen, that he loves who sees the covenant people of God that God has made tremendous promises to and sees them scattered like sheep without a shepherd, sees them hurting, harassed, and helpless, sees them in need. 
This provokes within him his compassion. Jesus sees that the true problem for this people is that they are sheep without a shepherd. He sees through the lens of Ezekiel. Ezekiel in chapter 34 talks about God's people. He indicts the shepherds of Israel, the leaders of Israel, who were supposed to exercise that leadership for the good of God's people, to keep his people holy, pure, to keep his people pointed towards Yahweh, following him. And Ezekiel says these shepherds now have started feeding on the sheep. And so the sheep are scattered among the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And God says the problem is these shepherds. And instead of trying to install new shepherds, God himself will come and shepherd his people. And that's what Jesus here is here to do. He's here to fulfill that. John, in, in the book of John, he calls himself the good shepherd. The one who lays his life down for the sheep. This is his mission. And so when he sees his people scattered and hurting, compassion wells up within him. Because this is part of his very mission, part of who he is. I think there's two things we ought to notice about, uh, from this. One is notice just how different Jesus is. Notice how different Jesus is. When he is confronted with overwhelming need, he is provoked to compassion. How are you and I provoked when we're confronted with overwhelming need? When we're confronted with the hurting, needy, and undeserving of the world, we might respond with frustration. We might respond with despair at our ability to do anything about it. I think often we respond with a willful ignorance. I think of the ways, some of the ways that I would be tempted to respond in Minneapolis. When we were there, when I was in seminary, we would see people on the street all the time begging for help, hurting, needy, undeserving. And we would be tempted to either not look at them, to ignore them because the need seems so overwhelming. How can you possibly make a difference? Because the minute you help someone, someone else is going to be there asking for help. There was a temptation to think that they deserved what they got because of their poor life choices. Many of them that might have been true. I saw an interview recently from a man, uh, of a man from San Francisco. Seven years homeless on the street because of a daily drug habit. Knew it. Knew that he was trapped and felt like he could not get out. He wanted to, but he couldn't. Some of the effects of what he was experiencing were indeed effects of his own sin. And yet it's our temptation to use that as a justification to look away from the hurting, to look away from the needy, to look away from the undeserving. Notice how different Jesus is. Notice he doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't respond to the leper like everyone else does by looking away. Right? What does he do? He draws near and he touches him. He doesn't respond. He doesn't respond to his enemy, the centurion, like everyone else around him does. Can you imagine the hush that would have fallen over the crowd as this Roman centurion came up? And everybody's waiting to see what Jesus will do. And what does he do? He speaks to him. He offers to come and help him. He draws near. He draws near to the demon-possessed. He draws near to the unclean. To the hurting, to the needy, and to the undeserving. He is different from us. His compassion is different from our compassion. 
Notice also how good Jesus is. Jesus is king of a kingdom. If anyone has a right to use others the way the shepherds were using the sheep, it would be Jesus. He is king. He has a right to do what he will. And yet notice how good he is. He uses his kingdom not to establish his own lust for power. His ministry is growing again, not because he wants more attention, but because he sees the hurting, the needy, and the helpless, the undeserving, and he is drawn to them by compassion. Jesus establishes his kingdom for the good of his people, out of his compassion. Notice how good Jesus is. Jesus responds to the overwhelming need of the world with compassion. And now notice, secondly, what he does with that. Jesus invites his disciples to see the way he does and to respond with prayer. Verses 37 and 38. His response is not to keep what he sees to himself and just continue what he's doing. He doesn't just do more ministry himself. That would be the temptation. But instead, notice in verse 37 what he does. He said to his disciples, he turns to those around him who he's called to be fishers of men, and he says to them, tells them what he sees. He changes metaphors from sheep to a harvest. says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Jesus is inviting his disciples to see the needy the way he does. To see not what the Pharisees see, sinners and tax collectors who need to be excluded from the temple at all costs. But he invites his disciples to see what he sees. A plentiful harvest. A great need that he is fit to fill. He says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Notice what he says next. Really interesting. Verse 38. Don't miss this. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Our logic would be then go do something about it. Right? But what does Jesus say? Verse 38. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus invites his disciples to see what he sees and then to participate by praying. Jesus doesn't go off alone to pray. He prayed alone plenty of times. But he doesn't take this great need he sees and the compassion that's welled up within him and go off to a mountain by himself to pray to his father that he would send laborers to the harvest. You'd think like if you want anybody to pray for that, it would be Jesus, right? He's got the connection with the father. Why would he have his disciples pray for that? His disciples who don't really even know how to pray. They'd be taught how to pray. Jesus is inviting his disciples to pray in order to begin involving them in his mission. He shows them the reality that the fields are ripe for the harvest and invites them to respond to that by praying to God that he would do something about it. This is the first steps for these disciples going from fishermen to fishers of men. By inviting his disciples to pray, Jesus is beginning to involve them in this mission. And he's also beginning to teach them where the hope for the success of the mission is found. Notice he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. It's the Lord of the harvest who sends laborers into his harvest. It's not, 
go recruit three and four, three or four of your friends. It's not go and do X, go and do Y, yet it is first turn to where the ultimate hope lies, which is with the Lord of the harvest. By seeing this, by seeing that Jesus invites his disciples to see and then invites them to pray, I think we need to learn that seeing and praying are the first steps towards mission. We need to learn to see the world like Jesus sees the world. Our world does not look at the needy, the poor, the undeserving as worthy of our attention. Our world, in fact, would seek to hide as much hurt as we could. This is why we value things like Instagram and Facebook, because on those platforms, we can portray a life that is fine, that has it all together. Jesus calls us to see through what the world would have us see, to see with his eyes, which sees a harvest that's plentiful, which sees great need for laborers. This drives him and his disciples and ought to drive us to pray. This is the second thing I think we can learn. Prayer flows from compassionate seeing. Prayer flows from compassionate seeing. When we see the world the way Jesus does, we will pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers. We will not do that faithfully if we do not see how Jesus sees He invites us, even if we can't see, to trust him. Notice he doesn't say to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Do you see it too? Do you notice? He might have said that, but he doesn't first say that. He just tells them to pray. He expects them to trust his assessment of the world. Thirdly, this prayer puts their hope in the right place. One of the big challenges with growing in compassion for the hurting and the lost is that our hearts will easily become overwhelmed with need. If we care, we will care too much. And we will be overwhelmed. That happens when we are captured with this vision of what the world actually is and where the needs are, and yet we still look to ourselves to fulfill the needs. Prayer teaches us, when Jesus says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, he is teaching us, Where hope is found for change. Where to look, in other words, when we confront the needs of the world. This is where Jesus looks. He sees great need and he looks to the Lord of the harvest and he sees great hope. If we see great need and we look to ourselves, we will be despairing. So Jesus invites his disciples and he invites us to begin participating in this mission by seeing as he sees and by praying like he instructs. It's really fascinating, though, that Jesus doesn't just say pray. I think in response to the prayers of his disciples, to the Lord of the harvest, Jesus himself, as the chief servant of the Lord of the harvest, answers this prayer by sending laborers into the harvest. Jesus invites his disciples now to participate actively, not just by praying, but to participate in his mission by proclaiming and embodying the kingdom of heaven. Jesus invites his disciples to proclaim and embody the kingdom of heaven. Notice, first of all, in verse 1 of chapter 10, 
He called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority. Jesus himself has authority to call and to delegate that authority. He wasn't praying for laborers because he himself was impotent. He wasn't instructing his disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest because Jesus could do nothing about it. Right? He didn't respond with saying, look at all this need. I hope God will do something about it. He is here to do something about it. This is his very mission. And so he has been given authority by the Father and he delegates that authority to his disciples. Jesus works in concert with the Father in this mission. It is the mission of the triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit to rescue a people. Jesus has authority to commission laborers, and so he uses that authority to do so. Where does he get the laborers, though? Notice the harvest is plentiful, right? But the laborers are few. Where is he going to find laborers? He calls to himself his 12 disciples and turns them into co-laborers in this mission. Where did they come from, though? Where did he draw these 12 disciples from? When he saw the crowds, remember what he saw. He saw harassed and helpless sheep without a shepherd. That's the very same place that Jesus drew his laborers from. These disciples were previously lost sheep. Think about Matthew in chapter 9. Just a little bit ago, Jesus was walking by the tax booth and saw Matthew, a lost sheep of Israel, harassed and helpless. And what did he do? He called him to follow him. He drew near to him in compassion. He saw instead of a tax collector who ought to be avoided because he is a traitor to his people, he saw someone harassed and helpless, someone needy and undeserving, and he drew near in compassion called him to follow him. And now Matthew is being transformed into a co-laborer with Jesus. He is being asked to fulfill the very prayer he is taught to pray. Jesus uses his authority to turn these lost sheep into effective laborers for his mission. And then he commissions these disciples to extend his compassion to the world. Notice how they're supposed to do it. In other words, what does he tell them to do? He tells them essentially to say and do the very same things he himself has been saying and doing all along. We'll look at the three things he tells them to do in just a second. But before we do, notice there are some aspects of their task that are unique. Right? A, these are apostles. He's given them authority as apostles which is a unique role, and he calls them in verse 5 and 6 to go to the lost sheep of Israel. Go nowhere among the Gentiles, he says, and enter no town of the Samaritans. This was a temporary command of Jesus for this time, right? Because he sends all of his people. He says that the Holy Spirit is going to come and give them power to be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He is not limiting his mission only to the house of Israel forever, but he is, during this time, limiting the mission of these disciples to the house of Israel. There are some other unique pieces, like his call to not take a staff or not take an extra change of clothes. Sometimes he tells his people to take staffs with them. 
I think the miracles that he calls them to perform specifically may be a unique aspect of this mission. There are, however, some universal pieces to this mission. He gives them essentially three tasks. The first task we see in verse 7. He says to them, in verse 7, Proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He gives them this task to proclaim the at-handness or the nearness of the kingdom of heaven. This is the same message that Jesus has been proclaiming all along, right? When he starts preaching in Matthew 4, what does he preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When he goes around to all the towns and cities, as we saw in verse 35 of Matthew 9, what does he proclaim? He proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. He tells his disciples, go and proclaim the same message that I am proclaiming. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is good news. And then he calls them, secondly, to demonstrate the presence of the kingdom of heaven. He calls them to do miracles, restoring brokenness, the same activities he himself has been doing, right? When he says, to, he says he gives them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. This is the same thing Jesus was doing. We saw in verse 35. When he says in verse 8, he says in verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. That's what we just saw Jesus doing, right? Manifesting the presence of the kingdom of heaven through miraculous restoration of brokenness. And yet, he also calls them not just to do miracles, which I think is good because what we take different stands on miracles today. He calls them to, more importantly and more significantly, I think, embody the very presence of the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 8 through 10. Verses 8 through 10, Jesus says, after he says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, he says, you received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. That sounds kind of strange. We get you received without paying, give without pay, but why specifically not taking extra tunics or sandals And why this ending for the laborer deserves his food. I think what Jesus is calling his people to do is to demonstrate the presence of the kingdom of heaven by embodying the Sermon on the Mount. Remember what Jesus taught his people in the Sermon on the Mount. The second half of Matthew 6 is entirely devoted to this. Right? They are not supposed to be anxious about what? about what you will eat or what you will drink, about your body, what you will put on. They are supposed to do what? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Knowing that their father knows they need these things and will provide what they need. They're taught to pray when Jesus teaches them how to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. And so here we see the disciples instructed to go in such a way that they are living out the reality of the Sermon on the Mount. That they are living out the reality of daily dependence on their Father in heaven who cares for the lilies of the field, who cares for the birds of the air, and who will care for them. 
This is what is meant by the laborer deserves his food. Notice, where do the laborers come from? They're sent out by the Lord of the harvest. Verse 38 of chapter 9. The laborer gets his food not from, not from taking from the harvest that he is reaping, but receives his food from the Lord of the harvest, from the one who has hired him and sent him out. And so this is a call to embody the presence of the kingdom by living according to the norms of the kingdom, living according to the Sermon on the Mount, living in daily dependence on their heavenly father. The third task is to call others to respond to this. So they're to proclaim the same message and they're to embody that message in how they live. And then they're to call others to respond. Jesus' preaching was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? Not just the good news of the kingdom, but a call to response. And we see in verses 11 to 15, these varied responses. There may be houses that are Worthy, or what we might say as receptive to the gospel. These worthy houses, there is a positive response. These unworthy houses, those not receptive, those rejecting the good news of the kingdom, those refusing the call to repent, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for them. The disciples went out calling others to respond to the good news of the kingdom that they embodied. This is what it looked like to participate in the mission of God. And I think this is what it still looks like to participate in the mission of God. Notice the simplicity. They're simply doing and saying what Jesus did and said. Yeah, there's some, there's some aspects that are elevated, I think, largely because of this time and the newness of this mission, such as these miraculous deeds. But the core is the same, proclaiming, repent, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's still what we proclaim when we go and seek to make disciples, right? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is good news for the hurting, for the needy, for the undeserving. And it's a call to turn from sin and experience true life. And not only do we say the same things, but we do the same things. We live in dependence on God as we live differently, as we live in light of the kingdom. This says something about the reality that we inhabit. This says that the kingdom of heaven really has come and really does affect our lives. Mission is really simple in many ways. This mission, doing this, meets the needs for compassion of the world. It is good news, in other words, that the kingdom of heaven is here. Remember Jesus starting on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is good news for all who are suffering under sin. For all who are lost without a shepherd. For all who are harassed and helpless. This is the way to show true compassion, not to... Put a temporary band-aid on something, but to bring someone to true life. To connect the needy in the world with the compassionate heart of God. I want to summarize here in conclusion for us. I think there's a few things we ought to see in light of this. One is that our mission must flow from the compassionate heart of God. There is no other foundation that will cause us to be successful and experience joy in the mission to make disciples. 
You cannot be driven by guilt. You cannot be driven by your own human compassion because your own human compassion has limits. I guarantee no matter how much of a compassionate person you are, your patience will eventually be tried. We need a compassion that is outside of ourselves. Our mission must flow from the compassionate heart of God. But it cannot flow from the compassionate heart of God unless we ourselves have first experienced that compassion. There are plenty of compassionate people in the world who do good things to alleviate suffering. What is the difference with Christians? The difference is it doesn't flow out of merely our own compassionate inclinations. But it flows out of a heart that has experienced the compassion of God towards us. As lost, as hurting, as needy, as undeserving. We have experienced the compassionate heart of Christ in the gospel. And it's that experience of Jesus' compassion that radically transforms all of our efforts to obey the Great Commission. We obey not out of guilt, but out of gratitude out of hearts that have been transformed, and want others to experience that life. Life on mission, then, is a call to begin with the compassionate heart of God and to continue in the compassionate heart of God. As we are called to say the same things Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is good news to us, too. As we are called to embody the presence of the kingdom, that is truly life. The best way to live is following Jesus. The best way to live is in accordance with the Sermon on the Mount. So it's not like Jesus is calling us to fulfill a mission that requires us to do something that is not good for us. He is calling us to do what is essential for true life. It is a call to continue to experience the compassion of God in our own life. To live life in light of the kingdom of heaven. To live the truly good life. The blessed life. And it is a call to enter into the compassionate mission of God in such a way that catches us up in a bigger story than our own experience of Christ's compassion. See, we live in a very individualistic society, right? Which puts the focus of our experience of Jesus' compassion on us individually, right? I have been forgiven, I have been redeemed, and I'm so grateful. And that is true and that is good. And yet, what Jesus is doing here is he's calling his people up into a greater mission beyond themselves. He's calling you and he's calling I into a greater mission beyond ourselves. And it's not a new mission, actually. It's a mission that goes all the way back to Genesis 12. When Genesis 12, God calls Abraham to be the root of his chosen people. What does he tell Abraham? He tells him that you're going to be blessed to be a blessing. You're going to experience the blessed life of compassion of a merciful God. And you're going to do that in order to that all the families of the earth might be blessed through you. Jesus is restoring a new Israel. It is no mistake that he calls 12 disciples. He's calling and constituting a new people of God to bring those blessings to the nation. To you, to me, and as he calls us from lost sheep to co-laborers, he's calling us to do that as well. To join that work that's been going on since the foundation of the world that continues all the way till his return.
And it is a privilege for us to be able to participate in that. So friends, let's pray in light of that. God, thank you that you have indeed been compassionate towards us undeserving. I pray that you would help us recognize our own undeservedness, Lord. For many of us, that is hard. For some, it's easier than others. But I pray that you would help all of us have an awareness of the compassion that you have shown us in Christ Jesus and be drawn in to see others in the world the way you see them. Would you help us start there? And would you help us learn how to be swept up into this great mission to establish your kingdom, to bring restoration, to bring the blessed life, life in your kingdom, which is beyond compare, better than anything the world would offer. Would you help us long for that and would you help us long to bring others to experience that fullness? I pray in Jesus' name, amen.